Let me start though with a question, and it's not on your screen. But I wonder this morning if there is anyone here who wants something. Is there something this morning that you want? You don't need this thing, but you really want. For instance, maybe you want a vacation to the Bahamas. Anyone want a vacation to the Bahamas? Maybe two months ago. Maybe you want a new car because your car is just, well, you know, you just want a new car. Or maybe you want a new job, you know, a new environment at work with different coworkers and a different boss, right? <laughs> uh, maybe there is something this morning that you want. Maybe you want someone to recognize you and appreciate you a little bit more. Or maybe you just want an issue in your life to be resolved. You you want some circumstance to just be done with and taken away. You know, like like okay, I'm beyond that thing that's been plaguing my life for some time now. I wonder. Does anybody this morning want anything? And if you, anybody here wants anything remotely to what I just said, like you just want this issue in your life resolved and solved, and, and uh, if any of you fit into wanting something, this morning's message is for you. So this morning's message is for me, and if it speaks to no one else, I know it is speaking to me this morning. We're going to talk this morning about... Great, I'm not even on, so good. Oh well. Thank you, you should yell at me there. Hopefully you heard me. But this morning we're going to talk about, uh, again, paradoxology, navigating the tensions in our worship, the paradoxes of the scripture and our personal doxology and worship. And we're going to talk this morning about one of the most difficult and divisive paradoxes in all of the Bible. We're not going to get to the most uh, divisive part of this paradox, Never got there, but we're going to talk today, when we think about the, this difficult and divisive paradox, we're going to talk about the paradox of the sovereignty of God versus the free will of man. And what does that look like? Eventually, I wanted to get into, you know, what does it look like in our salvation, but we're not going to be able to really unpack that this morning, but there is so much here. We're going to see this morning a, a lot of different paradoxes of God wrapped up in this, and we're just going to scratch the surface on this issue, but we're going to see how the various paradoxes of God tie back into his sovereignty. And there's an interesting verse I'll start with this morning. Back in Psalm 23, one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Like, I thought about that, and I, I looked at it from an interesting angle this morning. Like we, we say, David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know that sheep could say, that sheep could uh, proclaim that and say, the shepherd is my Lord, I shall not want. Like the shepherd could say, yeah, uh, or the sheep could say, the shepherd there, he is my Lord, he is my sovereign, my authority, I shall not want, if we can recognize him as that, and I think we can apply that to ourselves in kind of a unique way to stop and say, the shepherd is my Lord, I shall not want. The thing is, I was thinking about uh, David's words there, and it's interesting what David says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Would you not agree we live in a world of want today? We live in amongst uh, a whole host of people that desperately are looking for something and want something. It's kind of a paradox in its own sense because the Bible says no one will seek after God. The one thing we want, no one will seek after it, and yet that's what we want, right? We're desperately in want of a relationship with our Creator and our Redeemer. And so we have a lot of people in the world today who are indeed 
in want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And when, when you think about that word want, he doesn't say, I shall not need. Some translations say, I have, I, I have everything I need. But, but I think the word want there is better than the word not need. Because, okay, there, there are things like God will meet all my needs. But God even does more than that. Meets all of my wants. Well, what that ultimately means is that, that when I have Christ, I want for nothing. Like, I don't have any other true desires. Uh, I shall not want because Christ is ultimately all that I want. We, all have to, we have to all discover that at times in our life. And we, we just think, oh, if, I just, if God would just solve this issue or if God would just you know, give me this or, or meet this need, my life would be so much easier. And that's okay. And we're, paradoxically, we're called to bring our requests to God and pray to God and ask him. But the reality is, when we get to the point of realizing that all I really want is Christ in all of my life, in all of my circumstances, then we will have really arrived at that place that David speaks of in Psalm 23 of incredible peace. Again, we want to look at this and we want to look at today some of the harder paradoxes of the Bible, those paradoxes that surround God and again, as they speak back to God's sovereignty and you wouldn't think that would be a very controversial issue, the sovereignty of God, but it is. It's a huge issue in the church today how people look at and view and, and, and acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Now, there's another question we could intersect here this morning and the question would be, would be this. I'm not clicking forward here a minute here. Well, I'll go ahead. There you go. The question uh, would be this, is Christ the Lord of my life? That's a question, right? We, we probably ask that a lot. Is, is Christ the Lord of my life? And we could answer that in a couple of ways. Um, but the way I would answer it, like if you're here today and you have responded to the gospel, if you have received Christ as your Savior, um, if you are a new creation in Christ, then I would tell you, yeah, Christ is the Lord of your life. The Bible tells us that God has purchased us he bought us we are not our own so the reality is yeah god's the lord of your life we often read that like well am i making him the lord of my life and and uh, am i letting him sit on the throne of my heart i'm telling you when when you are saved god came into your heart he lives in your heart he sits on the throne of your heart he is the lord of your life the the, the greater question or reality is as a christian christ is the lord of my life but i must submit to and trust him so like the sheep out here that has the shepherd, that, that shepherd is his shepherd. But he may wander off and go his own way and do his own thing, but that shepherd is still his shepherd. And when we were saved, Christ became our Lord and our Savior. But we have to submit to him and trust him if we want to know the peace that David experienced back there in Psalm 23, if we want to live a life where we truly don't want for anything so we would ask that question most would say well yeah he's the lord of my life or usually or sometimes and i'm telling you all the time he's the lord of your life it's just whether or not you are acknowledging that relationship and what does it mean though to submit to the authority uh, of god and his sovereignty well we talked about it last week to some degree it's where that spiritual freedom comes into our life but it but it looks like this here's where it's challenging for us like when god wants me to when god wants us to forgive that person who wronged us when God wants us to make peace with an enemy, when God wants us to go maybe on a short-term missions trip and we're like, eh, I don't know. When God wants us to serve in some ministry, when God wants us to give financially in some way, when God wants us to do something and we're like, eh, I don't know about that. I don't want to, you know, I, we kind of push back on his lordship. And the reality is David would say that when the shepherd is your lord, you'll know peace and freedom and security and safety and you will want for nothing. So, 
We're going to get into this this morning. And I'm compelled to point one thing out. So I talk about a sheep this morning, and I thought this was interesting because we talked about like the word disciple and the word follow. Like you never find those really. After the book of Acts, they just become non-existent because we're, we're today, our relationship, we're, you know, we're, we're not necessarily called disciples and we don't follow Christ externally but internally. And the same thing, when you think about sheep and shepherds, like you really, once you get through the Gospels, and I don't know, I didn't check Acts necessarily. You get to, to Paul and on, you really don't see very much about the sheep and shepherd relationship. It's really not, do, and, and, and what you have in Scripture is really the nation of Israel is always the ones that are depicted as the, the flock of sheep. So in the Old Testament, you have the picture of the Israelites wandering aimlessly through the wilderness for 40 years. Moses, the type of Christ, is like their shepherd. And so he's like, leading this flock you know this rebellious flock and and uh and, but then jesus what did jesus often say he would look at the people and they 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 appeared to him as a, a, a as a sheep without a shepherd so that there's this reference now really the only place we see it is that one time paul calls pastors shepherds and so you're kind of like a flock and i'm i guess kind of like a shepherd and any of the pastors are kind of like a shepherd in the church so there is that tie in there. But this morning we're looking at this in, in the simple sense that Jesus Christ, who is our life, is identified as the good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd. He is a shepherd. That's his character. And throughout the Bible we get this simple imagery you see in Psalm 23 that God wants to be the shepherd of our soul. That the Christ who is my life is like a shepherd of my soul first peter 224 is one reference here we see he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls and there's this imagery going back all the way to the garden of eden that we are all like sheep that wandered away from god wandered out of the garden uh, rebelliously and we need a shepherd for our soul in the world we live in today so just some context there as we understand what it means to think about this idea of being a shepherd this morning i want us to consider the sovereignty of god and i want us to understand that as we trust him he will bring a security to our life and a steadiness to our soul that we will not be able to find anywhere else today's big i today we're going to look at this four movements of the sovereignty of god and a handful of paradoxes thrown in so four movements of the sovereignty of god and a handful of paradoxes thrown in and our, and our big idea is real simple the lord of lords is the shepherd of my soul if you have put your faith and trust in christ speaking to believers the lord of lords is the shepherd of your soul so are you submitting to him and are you trusting him with your life that's that's really the key and if you do you will know the peace and security that David knew in Psalm 23. First movement this morning is simply this. God is sovereign and rules over all. And I brought a little bit of a prop here. I don't know if this will help, be helpful. You've got that on the screen. I just kind of threw this out at the last second. But I want you to think about uh, this representing the timeline of earth. Like, like um, i got to look at it from your vantage point, right? So Genesis is over there, going that way, am I right? So Genesis all the way to Revelations, right? And there's a timeline here. And the reality is that, is that God is sovereign and rules over all. And so God is outside of this timeline. And God can look at it from every single direction. He looks at it from the top and the bottom and every single angle. God looks at this timeline and he rules over the entire timeline. And you can see on the screen there, like, it's not on the screen, but like, for instance, Noah's Ark. 
like God knew when he created the earth, uh, that he knew that, that like 1,600 years in, that, 20, that, that uh, be 2,400 B.C., that he was going to wipe out the earth with a flood. God knew that. He knows everything. And, and he saw that. Now, so God, that, that wasn't a surprise to God when that happened. Now, one thing God didn't know when he wiped out the earth with a flood, he didn't know how it would feel. That's the interesting thing, right? He didn't know. And so when, when God wiped out the earth with, with a flood, what was his prevailing emotion? Anybody remember? We've talked about it. His prevailing emotion when he wiped out the flood was not anger. It was grief. It was sadness. It's like, whoa, I wish I hadn't even created them. I didn't know it would feel this heavy, this sad to look at the world that I created. I, I knew it was going to happen. I knew I'd have to start over. I didn't know it would be this sad. I think it's phenomenal that you come to, to the 1,600 years in and God has yet to express any anger in the Bible, ever. Never got angry at Adam and Eve. No, never see him getting angry. But we see grief and sadness. And so, and then you go like to the cross and, and before, before God created anything, God knew Christ would come and he would die on the cross. I think there's a scripture here maybe. Oh, we'll go back to Genesis 1.1. Like, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about this before. In the beginning, God created time. He created the heavens, space. He created the earth, matter. And so God, way back in the beginning, you know, he knew that was gonna happen and he knew then Noah was gonna come and, and then he knows exactly what's gonna happen here with, uh, with, with Christ when he comes to do the redemptive plan. God is over the timeline of this world and has, uh, has seen the beginning from the end. Nothing on here. It's kind of fascinating. So in this verse here, Revelations 13, 8. Here's what, and all who are dwelling on the earth will worship him, Satan, whose names have not been written in the scroll of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And so back here at the very beginning as God's looking at this whole thing from, from outside of it, this whole timeline from outside of it, back in the beginning, the Lamb was already slain. I guess in the sense because God basically promised himself that he would send a savior and he promised himself the redemptive plan would be carried out and so yeah and so it was as good as done at that very uh, at the, in that very instance before he ever created the world it's like god uh, that christ had come and paid for the price and the sins for all mankind god knows everything as he rules over time so there's a couple of paradoxes that come in here though there's the paradox of god's sovereignty then right this is where we define what the sovereignty of God means as it intersects with the free will of man. And I'll give you a couple of definitions that can be helpful. Sovereign, it's, it's defined as the supreme power and authority. The supreme power and authority. And that's reflective of who God is in this world as he rules over everything. Now, sovereign, and, and th there's a kind of a reformed, and th this is really prevalent in this area, but the reformed view of sovereign is basically exhibiting total control over everything and everyone. So everything that happens, God basically controls every decision that is made. And uh, the, the understanding is that if God doesn't, then he, it kind of diminishes his glory. Kind of diminishes um, his splendor and wonder if he doesn't absolutely control everything that goes on in the universe. That's a reformed view. Uh, John Calvin said this, all events whatsoever are governed by the secret counsel of God. 
And so that, there's this view, and it's prevalent in this area. Sovereign, there's a word that's often attached to this determinism, that God just determines everything that's going to happen. Nothing happens that God didn't determine it to happen. And in, in many ways, when it's played out um, to its fullest extent, and this is tough, and, and so they, they answer this by looking to the mystery of God, but it's like Adam and Eve in the garden, like, like God determined they would eat that fruit. And, and so it's, it's, kind of an odd, uh, it's kind of an odd way to look at things, but God determines, that in, because he's sovereign. It just means that he determines everything and nothing happens that's outside of his control. I would say actually sovereign in the scriptures is the ability to do whatever one wants, including the ability to grant his creation a free will. So everybody in this room, and we'll see this later on in the message, we all have a free will. And God is sovereign, and he rules over everything. And, uh, and, and what I think is actually amazing, and it doesn't diminish God's glory when he doesn't determine everything that happens, is that God can take his prophetic will, and God can take his purposes, and he can work them out in context with our free will. Harold's uh, always shared this example that is so powerful. Like God uh, prophesied that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem and yet Adam and Eve, or not, Mary and Joseph and, and, and uh, you know, Caesar Augustus and all those involved in the story had free will decisions they made and, and God worked out his prophetic will inside our free will. And that's just kind of mind-blowing but that's how great our God is. That he doesn't have to manipulate every event for his will to be accomplished so just a, a bit of, of an understanding there about uh sovereignty uh, where this plays out practically like last fall remember the hurricanes last fall in florida and i we, we had some people here lived around pine island and you had some relatives down there i know and i heard a pastor uh, on moody radio talking about those hurricanes and, and in essence blamed god for them because that's the logical conclusion he wouldn't have said it that way but he basically said yeah god had a reason for you know hitting us with this hurricane. That's pretty much what his words were. Like God had a purpose behind it. And I'm like, no, God didn't hit Florida with a hurricane. The curse of sin hit Florida with a hurricane. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. And the curse of sin, the fall of man, plays itself out all around us. And, and bad things happen. And we can't say when those bad things happen, well, God pre-planned that or determined that to happen here's a simple verse uh, isaiah 46 9 remember this and stand firm recall it to mind you you transgressors remember the former things of old for i am god and there is no other i am god and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning from ancient times uh, from ancient times things not yet done saying my counsel shall stand and i will accomplish all my purpose and so god will do all of that but god has still given you and i a free will and uh, both of those are true, and I guess that's where the paradox comes in and the tension comes in in the world today. The question is simple. Does man ever act in ways that are contrary to God's will? Well, of course he does. Of course we do things. Adam and Eve went against God's will and violated the tree and plunged the whole world into uh, the curse of sin. And yet, God in his sovereignty is still in control and used all of that in the most profound ways. There's a difference between what God allows to happen and what we would say God determined or caused to happen. So God determines some things, allows some things, knows all things. And yes, the Lord of lords is the shepherd of my soul. Movement number two this morning then is this. God interacts and involves himself with his creation. So we, have, we could go back here and say, 
we have this timeline, right? And God's out here above this timeline or underneath. He's seeing the whole thing. And yet God, who is sovereign over this timeline, decided to come down and interact and involve himself with his creation, with you and I, on that very timeline. That's an amazing thing, an amazing thing that God came down. And so there are some paradoxes that fit in here. We can talk about the paradox of God's proximity which would speak to his nearness and his farness. And you just open up the scriptures and you'll see, uh, yeah, it's kind of like God is really far away. And no, God is really, really near and really, really close. It's a paradox. One passage, Isaiah 57, 15, wraps it up. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. Revive, uh, 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 to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And so we see this imagery. You see this, for instance, in the Bible when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments and God summons the Israelites to the, the mountain, the great mount of God, right, to get the Ten Commandments and then his glory falls down over the mountain and then what does he tell Moses? Hey, make sure no one breaks through and comes up the mountain or, you know, they'll be, they'll be dead. It's kind of like, it's like, come, but stay away. It's, it's an odd paradox. God is both near and God is both far. King Solomon understood this, same tension when he built the temple. In 2 Chronicles 2, verse 5, the house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him? except as a place to make offerings before him. And it's like, God is so great, who can build a house for God that can contain God, and yet I'll build this temple, and God will come down and will meet with us in this temple. And there was the holy of holies in the heart of the temple, and God came down there in the Ark of the Covenant and met with his people. It's an amazing, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thing. The beauty of this is that today that the very sovereign God who rules over all has turned our hearts into his throne. He's turned our hearts into his very throne. Now there's two words that can help us understand this paradox of his proximity. There's the transcendence of God. There is the transcendence of God. That God is this great God who is transcendent. Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Like, I'm not close, I'm far away. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not feel heaven and earth, declares the Lord. So here's this picture of God. The transcendence of God. And, and let me just tell you, the trans, transcendence of God is so important, especially like in our worship. It aids our worship. Like, it's one thing to think about, sing about God's love and his friendship and his closeness, and that's all good. But without the context, the foundation of God being this transcendent God who is sovereign, who rules over everything, there's just something that will be missing from our worship. You, you can think about... Uh, a love song you hear on the radio and it can move you emotionally and it can draw you closer to a, a person that you love maybe. And yet the reality is that love song is never gonna be foundational for your marriage, right? Or foundational for your relationship. It's, it's gonna take much more under that uh, relationship for a foundation than just a song on the radio. And, and there is something about 
the reality, the transcendence of God, that we're singing to a God who is over us and is greater than us, how great thou art. My point is our worship needs the foundation of a God who is transcendent. Consider how important the transcendence of God is to our spiritual walk. God's transcendence positions him as a God of authority over us, far greater than us, the creator of us. At the same time, when we come to terms with the transcendence of God, what does that say about his love? Listen to this. It adds weight and context to his love for us that that the one so great, the one so high and so exalted would stoop so low because he valued us and loved us. When you understand the transcendence of God, it adds something to his love for you because it's like, wow, God is so great and awesome and sovereign over me and he stooped so low to love me because he valued me. Isn't that just so absolutely incredible? In the heart of Manhattan in the Metropolitan Museum of Art hangs a famous painting by the 16th century Spanish El Greco. The painting entitled The Vision of St. John was completed around 1614, but it looks like it had have been it looks like it could have been painted in Paris in the earliest 20th century. It, its feel is not only modern, but also contemporary. Evoking the opening of the fifth seal in Revelation 6, 9 through 11, the martyrs who bore faithful witness to Christ are given white robes, while John, it seems, looks heavenward toward the epiphany of the Lamb. The colors of the painting are themselves a startling revelation of another reality. But the painting as we view it today is only a fragment. The canvas that hangs in the mat doesn't tell the whole story. In the course of a restoration project around 1880, the unfinished canvas was trimmed by at least 68 inches for almost half of the original painting. In the name of improvement, the scene is truncated by almost half. And so in what seems a fitting parable of modernity, the exuberant arms of the apostle John reach upward to nothing. To top... To, to the top of the frame, to the edge of the canvas. The martyrs seem to receive gifts from nowhere, and John seems to praise the non-existent. All of them seem to look for something no longer there. And I almost put the painting on here, but it had some, some, some kind of nudity in this, you know, those paintings can be. But it just shows him reaching up, but they cut off the, the, the part that pointed to God. We need that so much in we need the transcendence in our worship. We need that transcendence, the greatness and sovereignty of God. It, it kind of reminds you really of the, when, when you think of, of the transcendence of God uh, on its own will leave us a little bit wanting. It reminds me of the Bette Midler song from a distance, like God is just out there in the distance, you know, kind of unconcerned with us. And so the reality is the transcendence of God needs to be partnered with the imminence of God. The imminence of God. The imminence of God. Well, that word imminent just simply means existing or operating within. So this God who is sovereign and rules over this incredible timeline is also interacting, involving himself, and existing within the timeline. Isn't that just awesome? Isn't that just so absolutely incredible? So incredible. Deuteronomy 4.7, one of the testimony uh, of the Jews for what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? We read, am I, am I not a God far away? And here he is, how, clo- how near he is to these Jewish people. He is both near and he is both far. He was working in and with the Jewish people. 
Now, this then is where the beauty of this comes into play. When God's imminence and transcendence come together in my life, you see, the God who can see the big picture, who can, who can view the entire world can also see the big picture of your life. So you understand, right? When you have this timeline here and God can see everything, on the, God knows everything that's gonna happen. God knows everything that's gonna happen and God knows everything that's gonna happen in your life and my life. There is nothing that will catch him off guard. For instance, question. Did anybody this week face a surprise? Like last week you were here, you had no idea what was on the radar for your week ahead, right? I can say that. Or maybe it wasn't this week, maybe it was this year. Or maybe you have to go back to last year and there's just something that you didn't expect that to happen. Maybe it was a health crisis, maybe the unexpected passing of a loved one, maybe a financial issue, maybe a job loss, something that surprised you. Well, I can just tell you, right? When were you surprised by God lately or by life? I shouldn't say by God, by life lately. That's the question. And here's what we have to know and the beauty of this timeline and this understanding is that God is never surprised. Nothing will happen in your life and God will be like, whoa, I didn't see that coming. Whoa. Like, no, God knew it was coming. And God has involved himself not just in this timeline, but he's involved your, himself in your very life. And so God, like when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, God wasn't just reacting. Oops, I got a problem. What am I going to do? No, God had a plan. That Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. That Christ was slain before they fell because God knew they were going to fall. And God didn't cause them to fall, but he knew they would fall. And he didn't react, but he acted. And, and that's, I was mentioning, you know, this, this, this kind of determinism that kind of fits in, you've heard of Calvinism or Reformed theology, and it fits in there. And so, for instance, like in a personal sense, so my son, Shad, is uh, 27. I remember his age. He's back in the back room there in my office, you know, watching videos. He's severely autistic. And uh, so one view of God's sovereignty is God determined to make Shad autistic. That's one view. My view is, yeah, we live in a broken, fallen world under the curse of sin and Shad got autism and it happens. And, and sometimes we have things happen to us because evil people do things to us. But I don't think God ever sets out and determines to do something. But there's a difference between, again, God knowing something will happen and God causing something to happen or determining something to happen kind of interesting so God is interacting and involving himself with his creation right God knows everything but he does not determine everything but he knows what's going to go on he knows what's going to nothing in your life will surprise him and he's working in your life especially this is the beauty if you know Christ especially if the if the if the shepherd is your Lord and you're submitting to him well I, listen God's got everything in control in your life. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. You cry out to Jesus, really. And we understand today the gospel and we understand that in great, how we cry out to God today through the gospel, through the cross and how we enter into a relationship and Christ is near to us. To, to be honest, this word imminent is the opposite of transcendent. 
They really are. And so the God that is outside and over the timeline is all, also operating within the timeline. And the reality for you and I who know Christ, God is working directly in our lives. And the beauty of this then is what you have, if you think about it, you've got this, I think I put it up here maybe, you have the sense where God is big enough to fill up the entire cosmos and small enough to fit right here in my heart and to be a shepherd for my soul. What does Romans tell us? God's love has been poured out, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity, has been given to us. Christ is our life. In fact, the scriptures tell us we have the entire deity indwelling us. Father, Son, and Spirit. And that's hard to comprehend. And this is where this very popular verse really takes shape. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. And just know today that God works all things for our good and His glory. And nothing in your life will ever surprise God. In, in a leadership journal article, John Ortberg argues that sometimes stressful and painful situations can actually help us grow. Ortberg creates the following scenario. Imagine you're handed a script of your newborn child's entire life. Better yet, you, you, you're, you're given an, an eraser and five minutes to edit out whatever you want. You read that she will have a learning disability in grade school. Reading, which comes easily for some kids, will be laborious for her. In high school, she will make a great circle of friends. Then one of them will die of cancer. After high school, she she will get into her preferred college, but while there, she will lose a leg in a car accident. Following that, she will go through a difficult depression. A few years later, she'll get a great job, then lose that job in an economic downturn. She'll get married, but then go through a grief of separation. With this script of your child's life and five minutes to edit it, what would you erase? Psychologist Jonathan Haidt poses this question in this hypothetical exercise. Wouldn't you want to take out all the stuff that would cause them pain? If you could erase every failure, disappointment, and period of suffering, would that be a good idea? Would that cause them to grow into the best version of themselves? Is it possible that we actually need adversity and setbacks, maybe even crises and trauma to teach to reach the full potential of development and growth? Ortberg contends that God doesn't always erase all our stress and pain before it starts. Instead, God can use the failures, disappointments, and periods of suffering to help us grow. Ortberg writes, God isn't at work producing the circumstances I want. God is at work in bad circumstances to produce the me that he wants. Yeah, great. And most of us are saying, yeah, give me that eraser. Let me go back in time, my own life. But there's so much we would miss out on. The Lord of lords is the shepherd of my soul. Can I submit to him and trust him? So God is sovereign and rules over all. God interacts and involves himself with his creation. Yeah, number three, God makes himself known through Jesus. That's our third movement. The God who is over all and yet involved himself in our creation did so through Jesus. And, and that leads to one of the greatest paradoxes in Scripture, and we've talked about it in passing at different times, and maybe there will be a message in this where I'll just tend to spend the whole message and deal with this because it's such a tough one for us, but it's the paradox of Jesus, truly God and truly man. And, and I've said it before, you know, like we talk about that, and there are those who really struggle and diminish the deity of God. 
And there are others that equally struggle and diminish the deity or the humanity of, of God. And it's like, or I should say Jesus. Those that struggle and diminish the deity of Jesus, those that struggle and diminish the, the humanity of Jesus. He is truly God. He is truly man. He is both at the same time. And I, I've shared some of that. And, and sometimes when I share that, there is pushback from different angles. It's like, oh, that's really hard though. When you say that about him being a man and, and some of those limitations, it's like, yeah. It's a really difficult, difficult paradox. Colossians 2, look at this. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's all these treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Christ. Uh, Paul talks about these spiritual blessings of being in Christ in Ephesians uh, chapter 1. I was thinking about that in relation to last week's message. We talked about the paradox of the law. Like there's this amazing law in Deuteronomy 28 says there's all these blessings wrapped up in the law. And the paradox is, yeah, no one can keep the law. No one can master the law. And then I thought about that. So we don't have the law today. We have Christ today. And what does Christ have? Christ is full of spiritual blessings that are probably better than everything you read in Deuteronomy 28. Incredible blessings wrapped up in Christ. Hmm. John makes it even more clear for us. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Speaking of Jesus. I found some commentary. Don't know who said this. Uh, God, no one has ever, no, God, no one has seen ever. It is a categorical proposition that indicates we will actually never see God. Not in heaven, nor in the new earth. We will never see God. God is unseeable. That's how great God is. That's the paradox of the sovereignty and the greatness of God. And we see him then through the person of Jesus Christ. This is the parable of God's persona. Like, like the Bible has this picture of God being unknowable. Let me just give you a, a handful of passages here. as we just, just a couple of scriptures about God being unknowable. In fact, here's a quote that, that might be helpful. Did I put it on your Yeah. I don't know, again, who said this. I found this and lost who said it. God is unknowable, and yet you have to know him to know that. <laughs> there, you, there you have it, right? Like God is so amazingly, un- and you have to know him to know that he's so amazingly unknowable. Uh, Psalms 145.3. Great is the Lord, and greatly do be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And I could go on and give you many more scriptures, but we'll just move to the other side of the coin because Jeremiah jumps in then and gives us the paradox because God is to be known. Like the scriptures say God is unknowable and then the Bible says, yeah, and God is to be known. And we know that in part, right? We learn that in part through Jesus. So Jeremiah says this, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So no one can know me, and I want you to know me. 
paradox, right? And how do we learn about God and his steadfast love, justice, and righteousness? Through the person of Jesus, through the cross, through the redemptive plan. We learn all of that. It's just so incredibly amazing. And then Paul weighs in, right? What does Paul say? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul doesn't want to just know him. Paul wants to know him like in his life, like he wants this terribly awesome, incredible God to just filter through his life. Wow. The paradox of God's persona. And here's the thing that I have said before about Jesus that I think really fits in here. Did you know, remember this? Jesus takes the fear out of God. Jesus takes the fear of God. Look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. This is the paradox of God's uh, person. Let me go ahead and read this here. Uh, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much, much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So there's a sense of fearing God and working out my salvation with fear and trembling. And the reality is Jesus takes the fear out of God. This is the paradox of his person. And and just think about this reality. Like, yeah, it's like I don't have to be afraid. I can approach God now. Like God is knowable and now he's also approachable because of Jesus. And so what you have here when you think about this is that Jesus makes God both uh, knowable and approachable. But understand, I'm supposed to work out my salvation with fear and trembling and yet God is a father who loves me and I don't have to be afraid of him. And both of those are true. There's this reverential fear over here of the sovereign God who rules over all and there is this intimate relationship with a loving father who just loves me the transcendent lord is our loving father it's the paradox of god's person and somehow that works out and when the shepherd becomes our lord and we submit to and trust in him we'll know this tension in our life we will reverentially fear him and we will not be afraid of him and jesus takes the fear out of god makes him knowable makes him approachable the lord of lords is the shepherd of my soul you know if i can just one last thing here when you think about god the bible speaks of a god who is infinite right and i have this picture of god that we're going to get to heaven someday and and this is really going to kind of like blow your mind probably it does mine but it's like we go to heaven and for all of eternity we just discover new things about god uh, think of it in the, in the issue, issue of colors, right? Like, what are the primary colors? Uh, red, yellow, and blue. I thought I knew them. I had to look up. I was right. But there's these three primary colors, and then from those colors come all these different colors, and you go to Home Depot to paint your walls in your house, and, and there are, like, all kinds of shades and nuances of blue and purple and pink and everything, right? There's all these various colors out there. There's just tons of colors. What if I told you there are thousands more colors you have never seen can you comprehend that no it's like no these are all the colors i mean that's just what it is it's like what if there are thousands more colors that we will one day see when we get to glory and what if there's all this about god that is so infinite and grand that we'll discover someday and it's like it's like yeah we can't even wrap our head around that holy 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 is the lord god almighty and it's like for eternity they just kind of are expressing that reality and and there's just something incredible about God. Let's go to our 
last, our last um, <coughs> paradox, the Lord of Lords is the shepherd of my soul. And as I said, I wanted to get into the paradox of soteriology. If anybody wants to know what that word is, it's simply the doctrine of salvation. And this would have dealt with some of the, the divisiveness and some of the debate about when I'm saved, well, how does that work with my free will and God's sovereignty and the issue of election? Those things come up and we just can't delve into that this morning. But it is an interesting topic to be sure. But uh, let's look here at the last one and we'll close with this. Uh, God is sovereign and rules over all. God interacts and involves himself with his creation. God makes himself known through Jesus. And number four, this world needs a shepherd for their soul. This world needs a shepherd for our soul. I'm telling you that if you know Christ, the shepherd is, the, the, the Lord is the shepherd of your soul. Um, but the world needs this. The world, we live in a world of want today and the world desperately needs the shepherd for their soul. We live in a world of want. And I mentioned at the outset this idea of living in a world of want. Let me tell you why we live in a world of want. Isaiah 53, 6, look at this verse here. This is maybe the most amazing paradox I'm going to delve into as we close today. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so why are we in, 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 in a state of want? Because we have gone astray. But note what he says here. It's really fascinating. Note that he doesn't say um, that Adam went astray. Because Adam went astray, we're all astray. He says, we have turned everyone to his own way. Understand that every one of us in this room today, we're all held accountable. We have all gone astray. Not just Adam. We're born under the curse of Adam, right? We're born under the, uh, the cur- I should say, the curse of sin, the curse of Adam's sin. We're born, but what that simply means is that when I am born, I instinctively and naturally follow in Adam's foot- footsteps and I've gone astray. And I have wandered out of the garden and I have gone into the wilderness of this world and I am no longer in Christ or in the garden. I'm now in the world. Every one of us, every one of us, like sheep have gone astray. That means you're responsible, right? Paul said it this way, for all have sinned. He didn't say Adam sinned and we all fall short. He says, for all have sinned. Because the reality is under the curse of sin, we all sin. We're just going to be born and we're just going to sin instinctively, naturally. That's why you teach a, a kid, you know, that's a little toddler there in preschool or you've got to teach him how to share your toys because instinctively we're sinners. We have sinned against God. We're under the curse of sin. We're outside of the garden. We're in the wilderness. But this just points out that we are all responsible. Now back to that verse. Did you notice there's two choices that are made, right? We made the choice to go astray and then at the same time, the Lord has made a choice to lay on Jesus Christ all of our sins, all of our iniquities. And that's the choice that God made. And that is really, 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 really powerful. God's goal, his deepest desire is that Christ would become the shepherd of our soul. The truth is that what we are all, all wanting for is exactly what David says. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. We live in a world of want. Of people all around us, they just want the Lord to be their shepherd. They need a shepherd for their soul. 
And as I said, they won't seek him out, but God is seeking them out and God, and God is uh, pursuing them every day. And whether it's through the word or whether it's through a message like this or where, and even into creation, God is seeking them out. I want you to see the paradox here though because the paradox then comes up in the very next verse, Isaiah 53, 7. Listen to this. See if you catch the paradox. He was oppressed and he he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Anybody see the paradox there? Maybe John will help us. Maybe John will help you see the paradox. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See the paradox there? The, parad- the most amazing paradox maybe in all the Bible. We know that what? God interacted himself with our timeline through Jesus. Jesus came down and became a man. And you know what? The shepherd became a lamb. And, and we, all like sheep, have gone astray. Jesus the shepherd came down and was a lamb. And was obedient to the point of death. He was obedient to the Father when we weren't. He was, the, he was the lamb. He was the sheep that was obedient to the Father. We all like sheep have gone astray. And the great paradox is that the great shepherd became the lamb so that we could be reconciled and redeemed to God. All we like sheep have gone astray, but, but Jesus as the lamb was obedient to the Father even to the point of death. That is incredible. That is amazing. Here's a simple catch. The sovereign God who rules over all has given you free will choice in the matter. He has given you the ability to respond to his truth, his word, his spirit, and yes, look at this, even his creation. God has given us a a free will and we are now all accountable to him. What we're going to do with Jesus Christ. We can't use the excuse like I didn't have a choice. You, you, you had a choice. You have a choice. It's right here in Romans. For the wrath of God is revealed against, uh, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Who can be, uh, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. God's simply saying, you know what? I'll speak to you through the word. I'll speak to you through a message like in a church service like this. I'll speak to you through creation and I'll say I am real and I am sovereign and I am in control but I created this whole world for you to live in. And we are all accountable for what we do with all these revelations. God has revealed himself even in creation. To put it bluntly, you are held accountable to God for your own actions. You have gone your own way and sinned against God. God has revealed himself to you through Christ, the cross, and yes, creation. The good news is, though, that you can respond to God's call. You can respond to Christ the Lord. He can become the very shepherd of your own soul so that you will never truly ever want again. What do you want? 
What do we want right now? And I know at times we all think we want, and we get deceived and we think we want this and that and the next thing. I know what, if you know Christ, what you really want, you, Paul said it, to know him. I just want to know him in my life. And I want to trust him and I don't need an eraser to wipe out the things in my life I don't like. I just need Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much. What an amazing God you are. You're just like, it's just, what a paradox. You're so great and so grand and we can't comprehend you and yet you say, I want you to know me. Like we need to like, 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 like reverentially be in fear of you and at the same time not be afraid of you because you are a father. We can come sit on your lap and we can just unpack our life for you. And Lord, just whatever we're going through in our life right now, whatever we think we want, help us, just remind us that what we truly want is all wrapped up in Christ. And if we have you, we have everything we could ever want. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.